Good morning, again. Uh, many of us uh, in this church participated this weekend uh, in an event called uh, The Invitation to Racial Righteousness. And in a few minutes, I'm going to invite uh, Debbie Blue to come up and join me, uh, who was one of our facilitators this weekend. But um, just want to uh, provide a little bit of context, especially for those of you who were uh, not here, or were not able to make it, or for those of you who are visiting with us today. Um, scripture passage I want us to read together comes from Psalm 107, verses 1 through 3. Uh, let's read this together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their stories. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. There's a whole lot in these three verses, uh, and I just briefly want to point out a couple of things here. Um, the first is verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. One of the things that we did uh, Friday evening and all day Saturday is we told our stories in, in lots of different ways, and you'll hear maybe a little bit more about that later. But uh, we gathered around tables of six to seven people, and Debbie and our other facilitator, Greg Yee, they asked us to have conversations. Uh, once or twice we divided into smaller groups around topics of racial righteousness. And so they asked us to reflect on our own stories, some of our own experiences with issues of race or racism, coming to uh, understand things like ethnic identity, etc., etc. Um, and, and one of the things that the church often does uh, is tell stories. Anybody grew up in a church where there was testimonies told? Anybody? I did. Sometimes those were really great Sundays, and sometimes they were a little odd. Sometimes I felt really bad because it seemed like everybody had an awesome testimony except me. Um, but one of the things the church does is, is we tell testimonies, we tell stories. Um, the thing is that those stories aren't just illustrations. They're not just object lessons. Here we see that, 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 that the charge is for the redeemed of the Lord, those who are following after God, those who have, in our case, given our lives to Jesus. We were charged to tell our story. Why? Do we do this to feel better about ourselves? Did Debbie and Greg have us tell these stories just because they wanted us to be emotionally raw by the end of the weekend? as some of us feel today? Uh, no. We tell our stories because it's in our story that God is present. Uh, it, it's not an accident that when God chooses to rescue humanity, God sends his son at a very specific time, at a very specific place, to a very specific family who had a very specific history and a very specific culture. This was not accidental. God steps into the very um, nature of our humanity, which is the very specificness of it. Your story is different than mine. Your family is different than mine. Your history is different than mine. Your culture, in many times, is different than my own. And God steps into that specificity. God uh, saves universally through this particular moment in time. Are you, are you with me so far? 
There's something very powerful about God's choice to do this. God is somehow affirming his humanity. After all, we are created in the image of God. And so God steps into the thick of our humanity in this very, very specific way. And so that somehow for us to encounter this God, we go through this Jesus who lived at a very specific time. In this backwater place in the world that most people, even in that day, wouldn't have heard of. Jesus comes particularly with specificity. And so we tell our stories not as object lessons, not as illustrations, not as a means to an end even. We tell our stories because this is where God is present to us. In our histories in our cultures, in our memories, in the good stuff and the bad stuff. Jesus isn't this abstract principle out there somewhere. Jesus isn't somehow just contained in the Bible, and if we just read enough of it, we'll understand enough about who God is to kind of understand this thing. Jesus comes to us in the reality of our experiences. Am I making any sense to anybody today? So, so, now, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this is why Debbie and Greg had us tell our stories this weekend. I, I say this, and I start here because some of you are coming today, and, and something about interacting with your story over the past two days has you feeling off, tired, discouraged, confused, ashamed, guilty, angry, And that's okay. Um, Some of you who weren't at the racial righteousness event come today feeling those same things about your story. And I want you to hear that as Debbie and I talk today, that that the, the, the feelings that we have, the thoughts that we have, the questions that we have, these things are okay. That in fact, it's in these things that God is present to us today. Even in the hard stuff, because that is our human experience, which Jesus steps into. Don't run away from it. Don't push it aside. Don't sweep it under the rug. Whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in us today, whether or not you were uh, at this retreat this weekend, I, I ask that you sit with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, because this is where God is present to you today. Not out there, not in some abstract sense, but here, present in the midst of your story now. This is the incarnation of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Debbie, you want to come join me? You welcome Debbie today, please. Many of you know Debbie. She's been here a few times. She still accepts my invitation, which I take as a good sign. Um, I'm just going to pray for us. God, I ask now that your Holy Spirit would give us your words, that you would be opening our minds to hear what you have for us today. Be present to us in a powerful way, God. Be merciful to those of us who need mercy today. Convict those of us who need to be convicted today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so we don't have a really specific plan. 
for the rest of our service, uh, right? She is. She's following. And I don't know where I'm going, so um, that's right. Pat said the Holy Spirit. That's right. Uh, Thankfully, Debbie and I know each other enough, I think, to trust uh, that God will do what God wants to do in this time. But um, what 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 we've talked about is just having a conversation, the two of us, about some of the things that we thought about, saw, experienced this weekend. Uh, And then we're going to invite you to jump into this Uh, in a few minutes. We'll have a mic available and ask that you all throw out some questions, some observations. Um, And if that feels squishy to you, it's because it is. Uh, And we'll trust that God is going to firm that up as uh, as is necessary uh, to give us some direction here. Um, But but one of the things that that I heard a lot this weekend was uh, two words, guilt and shame. And, and some of you who were here this weekend, you heard those words too as we talked about history of race, racism in our country and beyond, as we sort of processed our own stories with that. Some of us uh, very aware of how that's impacted our lives, others of us not so much. Guilt and shame, um, guilty, ashamed, these words came up a lot. Um, and so I thought maybe we could just start there. What, how do you hear those words, especially in a church like ours, as we think about pursuing racial righteousness together, as we see that this is our identity, our way of being a light on the hill? Um, how do you hear those two, those two words? Um, can I first say to your congregation here, David, thank you so much for this weekend. Um, I was blessed by it. I know Greg was as well. He's gone back to California. Um, but it's always... Um, another opportunity for me to continue in my own personal growth in this area. And so thank you. You were a gift. Um, But interesting words, guilt and shame. There were some other words that I I believe were in the room, but we didn't necessarily hear them explicitly. And that could be words like anger, um, wounding, hurts. And I think they're all um, on parallel tracks with one another. For me, all of those words represent um, lament. Um, This whole race issue is so huge. Um, Some of us have um, knowingly contributed to it, uh, to the wounds of of what race has done. Others of us have um, been, I believe, victims in one way or another. Um, But guilt, shame, anger, Uh, I'll speak rage because those were some of my words as well. Um, Anger, rage, even hate. As I started on this journey myself, these things were revealed to me. Um, Didn't want to admit them or see them. But I began to realize as we, uh, the ECC, delved more into this area of intentionality of dealing with race, that there is a common experience that we can share as believers together. And that's to bring what we have. First of all, we have to name these things, whatever they are, and the ugliness that goes along with it. But bring them into the body together, within community. I don't think we have a theology of suffering or lament that we teach very well through the church. But I've come to realize, understand, value, and appreciate that lament means standing in the brokenness together. What does that brokenness look like for you? I've named mine. It was the anger, the hate, the rage, the unforgiveness, 
um, and, and the pain was deep and severe. But I had brothers and sisters on the other side of this issue who then began to acknowledge that although they weren't explicitly or, or intentionally violating, doing anything to me, they felt a sense of shame. They felt a sense of guilt. They felt a sense of blame. For one, at one point in my life, I was blaming each white person for what I was feeling. And um, as I shared with the group over the weekend, um, it was pretty good sitting in the place of being a victim. I could, I could live there and I could blame um, others for where I felt marginalized and oppressed, but the fact that we were able to come together and share those stories and begin to see that we each had our own pain um, through no fault of our own, only because of what society has done to us and here in America, but even around the world, that we then can name those things and together begin to stand in that place of brokenness. And I, I have come to appreciate lament as a gift and even a discipline. And I value being able to let, lament together with sisters and brothers who can name the places that they're in, as ugly as they are. Did you guys get that definition of lament? Can you say it one more? Do you remember? As I, I think it's standing together in brokenness. Um, being able to, to stay where we are, and that's what you were saying. Stay where you are. Don't try to rush through it. Um, because in lament, um, I believe that God is doing a new thing. And that new thing will manifest, manifest itself as hope. So there's hope that we can look and be this new creation that God's calling us to be. Um, one of the things that I've thought about a lot over the past year is the word grief, which I think is similar to lament uh, and maybe could be used interchangeably, but I think we see both lament and grieving in the scriptures um, over injustice, over sin, over idolatry. Um, and, and I think one of, the, one of the huge challenges for me has been what you're just saying, to not rush through it, uh, but to, to learn to grieve. Um, I don't know that we live in a culture or society that helps us do that well. Uh, we're good at medicating and numbing uh, and isolating. Um, and so I think one of, one of the things that I've struggled with, Debbie, is how do I grieve, how do I lament, and still be active? You know, that's one, one of the things we talked about this weekend, is that encountering realities of, of racial injustice calls us to action, even on a systemic level. But sometimes, to me, it feels like grief keeps me from doing that. You know, it's almost as if it sidelines me. So can you reflect for us a little bit? How, how does lament and grief go hand-in-hand hand with action, with movement? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, we, culturally we're a society that says, identify the problem and fix it. So let's look for those fixes. If race is a problem, we're the church, we know what to do. Let's, let's go ahead and fix that. Um, I think um, 
to be able to sit with the pain and the grief and not rush it to a fix so that I'm okay now and I can move on, um, which could equate to jumping right into action too soon. I, there is action that's required, but I think that action will um, come as a result of the grief and the, the lamenting that we're doing together in the sense of we see what God is now doing and the hope that's in there. What, what is God calling me to do? So I don't think it's a matter of sitting in the lament and the grief and saying, woe is me, I'm going to do something later. And I don't think it's the opposite saying, okay, I'm naming the lament and grief. I'm there. Let me go do something now. I think there's a balance in between of of trying to figure out what God might be doing in this place. So um, I would say let's not rush to fix it, but let's not sit in the grief and and lament and um, feel sorry for ourselves either. Feel free to use this if you want. Um, So maybe like a way to flesh this out a little bit would be to talk about the issue of mass incarceration, uh, which is something we as a church have talked a little bit about. Um, Ten or twelve of us are going to be doing a book discussion on the new Jim Crow, um, which I know you read a while ago. Um, but, But maybe you could talk us through some of your own experience with this issue as a way of helping us picture some of this lament and action, because I've heard both in our conversations as you've reflected on that. So could you kind of bring us into your journey with this, how you were first kind of exposed to it, and then now sort of where even you're leading our denomination in more active sorts of ways? Um, The New Jim Crow. Am I on? Oh, there we go. Um, The New Jim Crow, uh, I'm I'm so delighted to hear that your community is um, immersing themselves in the, the reading of the book, and um, I began to suspect that there was a problem in my community. Um, I live far, farther south, and um, I'm, I'm in the hood. Um, but I began to realize that there, black men in our community, older men, were um, disappearing. They were absent. But, you know, with the war on drugs and this whole crack cocaine thing and um, how it was... Um, killing our community, you know, there's logic that said, okay, so these people are going to prison, you know, for uh, crack cocaine, um, keeping our streets safe and all that um, publicity that was out there. And so I'm wrestling with that, but I read uh, an article that California was going to be releasing over 600,000 prisoners or some crazy number And I thought, hmm, where are they going? And my first response is, I don't live in California, but if I did, I'm thinking, wow, would they be coming to my neighborhood? I was convicted by that thought. And I thought, well, why wouldn't they? Isn't that the neighborhood they should come to where the church is so that the church can help restore them? So that just um, plunged me right into this journey of, of feeling convicted by the way I was thinking, but also on the flip side of that, say, so what is the church to do about this? How can we be a, a source of helping them reenter life and society? Um, so I was invited to go to Angola um, prison in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And there was a lot of fear and intimidation. I've done the Cook County Jail Bible study going and uh, my sister girl there um, going and doing some Bible study with women. And it was wonderful. I remember one woman who was saying, I'm going to be getting out soon. Um, Can you tell me what I can do? I thought, oh, I 
I don't know. Uh, where's your church? What, where do you live? And I, I, again, was convicted thinking, hmm, do I give this information? But going to Angola, maximum security prison where most people are serving life sentences, um, and we were staying on the prison grounds. It's been, uh, it had a history of being the most blood, the bloodiest prison in the United States. So there's a lot of um, fear and anxiety. Uh, the first night we got there, we were responsible for a worship service on the grounds. Went to the chapel, and as I stood up um, to bring some greetings, I was amazed at how comfortable actually how at home I felt. I thought, this is really weird. How am I in a maximum security prison with all these strangers and I'm feeling at home? Well, the reason was that 80, 82% of what I was seeing, maybe even greater percentage, looked like me. I felt like I was at home. All the black men that weren't in our churches, there they were in this church. And um, I began to talk with the men and hear some of the stories, and it was, it, it was mind-blowing that most of the people I talked to were there for um, nonviolent offenses, may have had a crack cocaine problem, and um, some of them then were there for life. And I met a three-generation family, a father, son, and a grandfather, all serving life sentences. And I thought... This is a whole generation or three generations that won't be back in our community. Something is wrong with this picture. So that propelled me on do, into doing some research. And this is before Michelle Alexander's book. And I began to realize, um, United States, you have a problem. Church, so do you. We were not doing anything. It was not something that was ever talked about in my own personal church. I live in the hood, and we don't have black men in our church. What's the problem here? And so that um, was a deep point of lament and grief for me and conviction. Um, and, And I sat with that for some time, and others began to grieve with me. Um, But then it was like, so now what do we do? And um, that's when I brought it to denominational leaders, and um, it's trickling out from there. Uh, at our last pastor's conference for our denomination, when, when Debbie says ECC, that's our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant right. Church. Not, you should know that, but in case you've forgotten. Um, uh, at our last pastor's uh, conference, Debbie was up front, and there's a lot of people at the conference, right? I mean, 1,000 pastors maybe? Or about 1,200 pastors, and, um, and she... She's, she's kind of taking us through some passages in the scripture and showing different places where, where God's followers are clearly called to seek justice. Um, and, and I love what you said because um, a prison is one of those. And, and Debbie said, um, now that's the last on the list and I'm a list person. So my heart says, well, we'll get to that one eventually. Let's start with the top of the list. And she said, but the Holy Spirit just won't let this go. I won't let this go. So Debbie flipped the list for us, and um, so our denomination is um, prayerfully considering how we're active in this, um, in this specific way. But I think that's a helpful visual for us of, of what it looks like to encounter something tragic um, and, and to see action 
Uh, and even, I think, worship come out of lament and grief. Uh, it's one of the things we see, uh, we talked about this as a church a few months ago in Nehemiah, in the first chapter of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah learns what's happening in Jerusalem. You know, Nehemiah is in exile. His people are back uh, in, a, in a devastated city. And when Nehemiah gets word of what's happening, the first thing he does is he grieves. He laments and he repents, even though he personally maybe hasn't done anything. He repents on behalf of his people. And out of that, he worships. And there's, again, that's hard for me. I want to separate those two things. I want to say, well, yeah, why? I, I, I like those boxes, I think. I like to check things. Okay, I've lamented now. I can move on. I can feel better now and get on to the good stuff or the happy stuff. Or, and yet... I think what you're putting in front of us is this ability to lament and grieve and yet still be active, still worship out of that, out of that place. And I like how you, you said that we stand in the brokenness together. Can you talk a little bit more about the, that together piece? Because I think a lot of us, we're grieving or lamenting as isolated people or as lonely people. So what does it look like in a, in a church context to, to be able to do that together, to lament together? I think, David, what you did over the weekend was a great example of what that looks like, um, to share the stories in community, um, stories that walls were being broken down. You know, they weren't easy stories to share. They weren't easy feelings to name. Um, But we didn't run away from that. We stayed together with that. Um, having some, for me, having some individual conversations with people and hearing the pain in that brokenness to be able to be present with one another in community. And I think the danger is that we want to, okay, we can do this right here over the weekend, and now I'm going to go away and resolve it and take care of it. I'm going to come back next Sunday, and I'm going to be okay. And you never know what I've gone through. I want to encourage you um, to be compelled to stay in community, to do that. Um, My own personal journey, I I didn't want to visit my story. Um, I had a professor that, in his gentle way, that just forced me into it. Um, he, He took me back to the slave songs, the Negro spirituals, when I just wanted to say, oh, that's the old people's music. I don't want to go there. But it wasn't so much, he didn't take me to the music. He took me to the theology of Christ within that. And that journey for me began a really painful exploration of who my people really were. And that I could be proud of that. And, and it began to, it, it started with me. It was my own personal story for an assignment. Um, but I couldn't keep it to myself. And so I invited my community into that story and began to share beyond that community. And, you know, you say you want to put things in boxes and take care of that and go on and feel good. I think the more we get entrenched in what's happening in our world, the less we will be happy. The less, the fewer places we will be able to find that will feel good. And I think that's a good place to be. Because I don't think God's up there having a, you know, a hookah party or whatever, just saying, ah, it's okay. 
God is, his heart is breaking, and our prayer should be, Lord, break our hearts for the things that are breaking your heart. And there's a difference, too, right, between sort of that um, clueless happiness and, and joy or contentment. Oh, absolutely. How does that play out for you? Um, I, I really feel like the, the happy piece... Happiness um, is, is, for me, it's contingent on what's happening externally. Joy, it doesn't matter what's happening externally because it's coming from the inside. And so there's a joy for me when I think that um, even though I'm in a place of lament and grief, um, my heart is breaking because I'm seeing things that I don't even want to see. But there's a joy in God acknowledging, uh, helping me to acknowledge those things. And so it, it's, it's the inner being where Christ is that brings me joy because I, I think I'm being obedient. Um, even though it's painful, it's okay. It's really okay because uh, as we were saying, great is thy faithfulness, God gives us strength for today, for a bright hope for the future, for tomorrow. And so that's where the joy resides. It's that hope in the midst of lament that God is doing this new thing and what's going to come out of that, I don't have a clue. Yeah. But the joy is journeying with God and in, in seeing and being patient and waiting, but responsive to what he's doing in that. Yeah. Yeah. She almost started preaching, right, Pat? I mean, just we, you and I saw, right? I'm just for the, I just, we had witnesses. You were, Debbie doesn't think she preaches, but I think, I don't think that's true. Um, that's really helpful, I think. Um, and, and that's how I experience you. Um, you know, in our conversation, so Debbie is my spiritual director, so we get, uh, we get together and she lets me just verbally vomit, you know. And um, but I experience you that way, that, that you're able to see and experience and enter into uh, incredibly difficult, hard things and, and not, um, not then distance yourself from them in order to feel okay, but to somehow, even in the midst of that, to experience um, joy. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that very much about you. Um, let me shift here before we do some Q&A. Uh, I, I read this quote to Debbie this morning. Um, there's an interesting uh, video clip. If you're interested, in it, I can give it to you. But it's an interview with uh, Harry Belafonte, and he's reflecting on a conversation he had with Dr. King five days before he was assassinated in Memphis. And, um, and he's reflecting on some of Dr. King's questions, or uh, uh, yeah, I guess questions about the civil rights movement. And so I want to read this to you, and then I want to bring that to some of the things we talked about over this weekend. So Dr. King is reflecting on uh, our country, America. Um, and he says this, he says, its selfish goals, again, this is America, its selfish goals, its need for profit, its need for supremacy, its need to be the best has clouded its moral vision. And with no moral vision, no nation can be healthy enough to lead its people anywhere except destruction. And then he says, I am afraid we are integrating into a burning house. One of the things that Debbie and Greg had us do this weekend, we went to the gym. Some of you don't even know we have a gym in our building here. We went to the gym, 
and they had us line up on the center line uh, of the basketball court, and they had us do a race race. Is that what it's called? I won't give it all away, but through a series of questions, uh, we either advanced a step or went back a step. And then after the 30 or so questions, they said, okay, now is when the race begins. And at that moment, we are spread out across the gym. Um, Most of us who are white are at the front. Uh, And then from there, it it got a little fuzzier, but many African-Americans were towards the back. Uh, Asian and uh, Hispanic folks towards the middle, but that wasn't totally true. It was kind of messy in there. And Debbie had a bag, and she said, now this is the prize on your mark, get set, go. Um, And the prize was some chocolate, and um, somebody got it and enjoyed it. But that provoked this conversation about what it is that we're striving for, what it is as, as American people that we're striving for, what is the system that we exist within that calls us and causes us to strive after some sort of prize or goal. This Dr. King quote kind of called that to mind because you asked us to consider whether this prize is worth it. Um, So maybe you could say something about that, but also what's the alternative? Uh, We're schooled in this way of being citizens, Americans, and this American dream that we pursue. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to imagine something different. So can you talk about that a little bit? Um, the prize uh, is something we're all in pursuit of in our society, but we don't know what that looks like. I mean, we have some thoughts. Maybe it's the American dream that says we are supposed to um, get ahead at whatever cost, but we do it the right way, get ahead to get to the place where we're perceived as normal. We're perceived as having the things that society tells us we need to have to be considered successful. Um, Everyone's on pursuit to follow the rules. We want to follow the rules. We want to do the right thing. And so if this is what society has told us to pursue, that's what we're all trying to get. So for dominant culture, the ones who were in the front, um, that actually becomes easier because you start ahead of the game anyway. For others who end up in the middle or the back, it's harder, we keep pressing on, but for whatever reason, that prize is like a moving target. So maybe if we get too close, it's going to change. Other conditions will um, inform it so that it becomes further for us to achieve it. But when we think of kingdom values, are the values that society has set for us to proceed and push forward to the values that we should be pursuing? And if so, is the pursuit worth giving up community, relationships, that God has called us into and is forming a new community out of who we are. And so that, of of course, everyone wants to have, um, you know, status. We don't want to be seen as the low person on the totem pole, but who's, who's configuring this totem pole? Who's laying out the rules that say, this is what determines now you are successful? 
And so as we were playing this race race, playing this game, we were holding hands. And um, we didn't really talk about what that felt like. We didn't go into detail what that felt like of, of dropping, having to drop um, your brother or sister's hand because you were either proceeding forward or moving backward. But I think we need to think about do we keep holding hands and pursue whatever it is Christ has called us to together, or do we let go because there's something that the world says will deem us successful when we get there, knowing that everyone does not have access to the same things? So when we're pursuing justice, if it's not a just system and we're pursuing it as Christians, I believe something's wrong with that. Um, if it's, we all want to be comfortable, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe our comfort comes ahead of what others might be suffering. So I don't know if I answered your question sufficiently, but. Um, Josh, you want to grab the mics? We'll do a Q&A in a second. That, that brings to mind, um, for, for five years, um, Maggie and I lived in a western suburb, and it's one of the most affluent suburbs, um, very, um, Lily White, as I would say. And we had good community. We were glad to be called there for that season. And at some point, it struck me that um, this was it. People had arrived. This was the end of the race. Mm, you got the prize. There was nowhere to go from here. Um, in terms of the American dream, I mean, the house, the job, the security, the comfort, the safety, the vacation, the status. Um, and what was helpful for me was that I had uh, friends doing a high school ministry in that town, and they could help me see below the surface and what was going on below the facade and the, the drug use and the family splintering apart. But there's enough money to cover it up, unlike other communities, right? Um, Derek knows maybe a little bit about that where you teach now. Um, but I think... Uh, I think that that caused me to sort of, having never lived really kind of in an affluent suburb until that time, to realize that the attaining of the dream, um, there, there's nothing, there's, there's no satisfaction in that. Um, and yet the church has so often kind of bought into that and sort of said that that's our goal as well, maybe not explicitly, um, but we structure ourselves, the way we talk, the songs we sing often, the priorities, the way we spend our money, often reflects a very similar goal. Yeah. Um, can I share this story? Um, verses 1 and 2 talks about this great cloud of witnesses that are watching us run this race and um, it's a different goal from what, running this race is a different goal from the race that we're running in our society. Uh, but what struck me, I, I read this story about um, an Olympic um, runner. I think his name was Derek Redman. I might not be getting his name right. But in 19, I want to say 98, um, he was in a qualifying heat to enter into the finals. And he had done everything he could to get to this point and tore a hamstring. He, he, he was in the lead. He collapsed on the field. And um, they brought out a stretcher. The medical team came around him. 
and he got up and he started limping towards the finish line. And out of the crowd, from all the way up by near where the, the torch was, the father, his father, ran down and ran onto the field. People were, he ran through security. They were trying to stop him. But he ran to his, his son and put his arm around his son. And his son kept running. He, he needed to finish the race. And it wasn't for the prize. And so that's, that was, that was a, a secular example of we have a race to run. But we have a prize that's much different from what we are pursuing in society. And we have each other when we fall or tear a hamstring that can come alongside of us and say, we're in this together. We're running to this finish line together. I'm not leaving you back there to pursue the prize for myself, but I'm taking you with me. We're going together. So you don't drop those hands in the race race. You hold on to those hands and say, we're after this same prize. So I just wanted to share that illustration with you. Uh, so Josh has a mic, and we would like to hear from you. I have, I've gotten to maybe a quarter of my questions, so we can just keep talking, but it's maybe a little bit more interesting. Are there things that are coming up for you, questions, uh, thoughts, reflections, either from this weekend if you were, you were here or even just from today? Um, keep them fairly uh, succinct if you can so we can allow Debbie to, uh, to respond to those. So anybody just put your hand up in the air. I was a little shy at first. Yes. And if you could just say your name, too, that'd be great. Thanks. It should be green. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Ceasefire is all about uh, well, um, it's all about uh, violence prevention, which is uh, it's an outcome of racial injustice. Um, so my question is, ceasefire is I think it doesn't really have a faith-based relation like relationship with the community. So how do we change from um, something that is more just a nonprofit organization that's just a community, and how do we change that to something that is more godly based? That God is here in the community, that it's God that's changing this. And so, how can we um, provide that kind of avenue that it's God, not necessarily the people, the community? That's my question. Thanks. No, I, I think if there are organizations doing good things, that's not a bad thing. I think what we do is partner with them, and we bring God with us. Um, so it's not an either-or. I think it's a both-and. I think it, it, it raises the question, too, of our churches willing to partner. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> right? Because I think oftentimes our churches have legacies of being very insular, inwardly focused, 
And um, so whether we're even open to what James is suggesting to partner with those who are doing good work. So, yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, I, I affirm what you're saying, David. Um, too often our, our churches operate as their own private country clubs. And so we really are insulated from what's happening external to our churches, which is not the case here at New Community, right? And um, it is the case with my own uh, local church, but we don't know what's happening out there. So I'm grateful for programs like Ceasefire, but I'm also, I would be much more grateful if the church came alongside of them and say, how can we partner together to do something to um, re- transform our community? Hello. Hello. Yes. Okay. Hello. Okay. You know, um, I, I used to think the same way about the church should be there. I mean, church is the answer. We got the answer. Everybody should listen to what we're saying. But now that I'm, in, I'm, working, I'm, I'm working at a, a youth correctional center, I'm working in a maximum security prison for youth from age 16 to 20. And, and not only that, but, and you can't bring religion in schools. Okay, I'm a teacher. So you can't bring religion into schools. So I'm understanding that, okay, you have to be able to speak to people in non-religious ways. And as a Christian, I used to feel, oh, you know, what we're doing is the right way. But like Debbie was saying, you know, our churches, our churches don't necessarily have a great history either of, of how, how they're helping the community sometimes. So um, I, I, I agree with Debbie is saying that we have to pre- be able to present things to people who are not Christians. Uh, but God can... It's, it's us. It's, it's who we are, I guess. Is what you, so that's harder because it's easy for me to say words. You know, okay, Jesus said such, such, such. But, it's, but okay, well, so who, who do I have to be in order for someone to be willing to listen to me? That's harder. Okay, I've got to listen. I've got to actually listen to somebody. I've got to actually care, you know, and, and get beyond my own judge, judgment of people. So... So that used to be my idea, too, that, oh, it's just we got the law, we got the word, we got the answer. Let's fix it, right. that word you're saying. So, but it's not about that. It's a harder thing of me. Well, who am I? So, yeah. I don't know. That wasn't a question, but. No, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody else. I think Dominique. I've read the book. I, my name is Dominique. Um, to me, this uh, goes to, for me, what I see is one of the biggest chasms within the church, um, the conversation between works and word, um, evangelism and justice. Um, and we, we've created this schism that doesn't really exist within Scripture. And for me, if you look at the text, um, it's clear that the strongest testimony we have is the lives that we lead on a daily basis. But I think there's been so many people who have been so jaded by what the church has done that they've gone to this place where, like, it's all about what we do. But in an instance with, like, people like Ceasefire, yeah, like, there is this separation between what we can do as the church and what we can't. But if we as individuals embody what the scriptures call us to and we're actually there doing things like what Ceasefire is doing, if we're showing up at prisons, if we're ministering to people, while we can't do it on the clock, people will want to pursue us 
once we're off the clock, and then we have to be able to have the knowledge and the courage to evangelize to them then. And so if we're, as the body of Christ, aren't willing to live our lives in a way that truly reflect the one who is supposed to be the purpose of our existence, like people aren't going to want to pursue us afterwards to want to know what it is that makes us be different. Like, what is it about you that makes you be willing to come to these communities that nobody, no church is willing to come to and put your life on the line because this is gang territory or this is whatever, and the church doesn't see this as these people as church people. They're not redeemable. Ultimately, that's what we say when we don't go to these places and when we don't minister to prisoners and we're not there for them when they um, get released. We're basically saying that these people aren't redeemable and God's not big enough to make a change in these people. But ultimately, it's got to be that we have to be truly new creations to be willing to go to those places and make those kind of sacrifices for our own lives because they will cost us something. Um, We're going to be stigmatized as a church if we decide to enter into these places. We're going to be, we're going to lose friends as individuals if we're always willing to, you know, hang around communities that are, uh, have gangsters or thugs or, you know, prostitutes or homosexuals. We're going to lose people and we have to be willing to do that because our understanding of what the gospel calls us to. I just, um, echo some of what Dominique is saying is that most of our churches nowadays are not community churches. They're churches in the midst of community, but everyone commutes in and out. And so we have no clue what's happening in communities. And many of our churches that were community churches, when neighborhoods begin to change, they fled as well. So if we're not willing to stay in the community and be that light within the community, then I think we're living artificially to say, oh, I'll come back and help. That's the compassion response rather than staying there and and having compassion, mercy, and justice emanate from who you are. Um, I'm not sure if this is the appropriate environment to say this in, but I'm going to say it anyways. I feel like every time we have one of these, like, congregational conversations, people keep asking what they can do and they want advice for ways that they can live out their faith either in their jobs or with different organizations or how our church can be involved in that and it's a little bit frustrating to me because I feel like you're you're an individual right we're just individuals that make up the church and you should be led by the Holy Spirit to do those things in every way in your life so like it's a little bit offensive to me as a social as a social worker that my my job might not be considered Christian in your mind or that I wouldn't be called to do that. Where my values and my morals and the reason I want to be in that job is because of Christ and what he's done for me. And I keep hearing this disconnect in our church where people, they can't understand that and we can't understand how the Holy Spirit can lead us just every day in life to be involved in these sorts of things. You know, and so, and I worked with Ceasefire last year, and there was a large spiritual component to that. And the reason that I, we wanted to work with them, the reason that I personally wanted to work with them, is because of the things that Christ has done for me in my life. That's what led me to that moment to be able to have those skills. And so, 
I feel like I wasn't there this weekend. I wasn't able to come, so maybe some of these things were addressed, but I feel like we keep hitting this brick wall where it's the church and then it's like everything else that's trying to help people. And I I don't see that separation. It's really difficult to keep hearing people say those things. Thank you for uh, saying that. Uh, uh, It's interesting. One of the things that Debbie... And we'll go to maybe Lamar next. One of the things that Debbie talked about this weekend was four stages of community uh, from M. Scott Peck, right? Um, and in these four stages being pseudo-community, where every, everything is kind of surfacy and happy, and then uh, chaos, and then emptying, and then our, uh, community. And, uh, and one of the questions that I wanted to ask that we didn't get to, but I think might touch on a little bit of this, Lauren, is that as a church, I don't think we're ever going to be in just one of those stages. Uh, as a church, we're called to be radically hospitable to anybody who we encounter, to anybody who we welcome in, in our doors. So we can continue to, to pursue the vision and the mission that God has given us. But there's also, Sonia and I were talking about this this morning, there's also a realization that we will exist in this tension forever. And that some of the conversations that you're reflecting on and that different ones of us will go, oh, yeah, are going to be new conversations to other people. And, and what does that mean for you, Lauren, for me? How do we, and, th- and I, this is going to be my last question I asked Debbie. I'm going to get to this in a little bit. But how do we be sustained, Lauren? How do you be sustained in that while still pushing us and being prophetic and saying, look, we're called to these places. God is doing good work in these different areas, in these organizations, in my workplace, and still showing up to those who God continues to bring to our, to our church? That's a hard question for me personally, um, but I think if we're going to be the church, it's going to mean that we sit in that tension because we are this radically hospitable community. So we're always going to be kind of all over the map with some of these things. We're never going to have arrived finally at community, not unless we close the doors today and say, okay, whoever's in this room, that's it. Now we get to figure this out. Let's move through the four stages really nicely and neatly, and it doesn't work that way. I appreciate that a lot, Lauren. Thank you for putting that on the table. Can we go to Lamar here in the middle? Lamar, my name is Lamar. And um, on the topic of, you said something about success and goals. And um, my question is, how do you, differentiate success like I have things in my life that I want to do and things that I'm that I want to work hard to and strive for but where's the line between working hard and striving for something and kind of putting it on a pedestal you know like how do you differentiate where's that line draw that is an excellent question that I have no answer for <laughs> good luck with that I think it has to be, um, number one, a personal uh, question that you wrestle with, but also one within community. Uh, what is it that might, you might trample over to get to where you want to go? Would you consider that success? Or what is it that God's calling you to that may look a little different from what your expectations are? Um, yeah, it, it really is a hard question that I think individuals have to wrestle with because none of us want to um, 
the projects are all gone now, but that wouldn't be deemed successful to say I have an aspiration to move to the projects. And if you live there, you wanna, you're, you're aspiring to move out of it. Uh, but what's reasonable that it doesn't leave others behind or that it doesn't sacrifice your spiritual being and state of being present with God to get where you need to go? I don't know. That, that probably is, a, is an inadequate answer, but it really is a hard one. Um, I've had to make some decisions along the way. Uh, I have three adult children who constantly tell me that I need to move out of the neighborhood that I live in. Um, it was a, a neighborhood we moved into that was all white. Uh, we were labeled as blockbusters, so it was vastly different then than it is now. And so as projects went down, um, then people that looked like me started moving in. And, uh, of course, some other things came with that. But, actually, I felt, well, I can make a choice to do what's done to me and uh, leave when people who look like me move in. But that didn't make a whole lot of sense. So where I am is probably not the best place to be, but it's okay for me. Because it's home, it's community. So success by... The world standard says, well, you probably can afford to move to the neighborhood you just left. Um, but that's not my desire. Uh, that doesn't deem successful for me. Um, I'm, I'm at home. I'm in the hood. Native Americans say it's, it's going back to the blanket, and I like where I am. Uh, one other thought on that is... Um, is is what we're striving for our identity, right? Because when we, when we finally attain that thing, whatever it is, for some people it's becoming a parent, um, and then when the children leave the house, the identity disappears, or for some people it's that certain job or certain neighborhood or certain house. I think when those things become our identity, that's when we become willing to trample over anybody to get them because that's who I am. I need to be that. If I can't be that, then I don't know who I am any longer, right? So I think that for me is always a check in my pursuits and my ambition. Is this a God-given call or do I need this to know who I am? Hi, uh, my name is Avriel. Um, on this whole theme of racial righteousness and thinking about shame and hatred and anger, um, the first thing that I, I think about is being feeling condemned and feeling judged, judgmental, or being judged, like you said, being, having, being the victim or being the person that's actually doing it. And as Christians, I find a person who's new to Christ or still struggling trying to debate whether that's the direction that they want to go, they seem to find that that's what they feel sometimes dealing with Christians, that they feel judged, and they feel that may, maybe even dealing with when you think of a racial, you know, righteousness, you are thinking of um, that in the body of Christ. And as a Christian, how can we um, touch people in a way that they won't feel that way? And I know that's something that, you know, oh, well, some people say, well, maybe that's a personal thing. But Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we aren't acting in love. Maybe we're not acting with compassion 
as much as we should. And even with dealing with a racial, the racial issues, that we all know that we've de- dealt with them at some point in our lives or maybe our parents' lives, grandparents' lives. Are we really acting in love and compassion when we're dealing with things like that? So, I mean, just on the topic of how do we deal with that from a Christian point and when we're inviting people to come into the body of Christ, because, I mean, I think it does start there, and then they can start addressing some of the other issues when we're, you know, dealing with this theme, I guess. Yeah. Um, hmm. I think it, the important piece of that is relationships. Um, that our, our superficial relationships aren't going to get it. People know when, um, I think they know what they know, that this isn't real. But I think that is a process of going into committing to a relationship, being able to, to um, be real, um, be authentic, be honest with one another, speak truth. But I, I feel like the church is not that place that allows permission um, right away for someone to enter into and be real. So how do we how do we get there? That's the that's the problem. How do we get there as a church? I've, I've often visited um, AA meetings with my brother in California, and I welcome going into those meetings because immediately people stand up and say, "Hey, this is who I am, and I'm an alcoholic. I know I fall short," um, and the community affirms that person and say, "It's just one day at a time," and they walk together. So as a church, uh, I think we all have these, these um, stereotypes and ways that we think about people. You know, we can judge people just as we talked about prejudging and um, prejudice and, and racism. Um, and off the bat, without having a relationship, we're only left with what we see. So how do we move beyond that to establish some relationships and, and dismiss those, those judgments? And that goes back to Peck's model again. So we'll do one last question, and worship team, you can go ahead and and come back on up. Um, My question goes back to the uh, race race, Um, and you were saying that instead of letting our brothers and sisters go to advance, uh, we should hold on to each other. I get a very um, uh, secular imagery with that. um, I'm one of those types of people where if... If I see something that's going to push me forward, I'm going to go for it. Um, And I'm not really sure how to bring someone else along with me. And so I guess my question would be, um, how would we as Christians do that? How would we, not just as Christians, but as people, um, how would we do that? You know, uh, when we see success happening in our own lives, how do we then turn around and bring our brothers and sisters along with us? Uh, without missing out on opportunities to advance? You guys have some really good questions. Um, well, first of all, what, what we noticed yesterday, not many people in the front turned around and looked to see who was behind them. And I think that's important that we, we, we can be pursuing our, our way forward, but if we haven't checked what's happening behind, I think it's, it, it boils down to justice issues. So if I'm moving forward and it's at the cost of someone behind me, 
that is um, suffering some unjust injustice or persecution of some sort, then am I willing to keep moving forward because I have these goals in mind for myself and I'm in pursuit? And that's the hard thing because that means now I have to sacrifice or give up my pursuit to advocate and come alongside someone else. So I'm not saying moving forward and, and heading toward whatever that prize is is wrong, but it is wrong if it's costing others that can't come along as well. If everyone doesn't have the same access, there's a problem there. Uh, so this would be the last question I'd like you to I reflect. I, 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 <laughs> I still have the microphone. So um, One of the things that I uh, worry about for our church is um, that we, we tend to be, not, not totally, but we have a lot of younger people, a lot of younger people in our church, and... Um, and I, and I worry about people getting tired and just wearing out. Um, just tired of the conversation, tired of choosing maybe to stay back when I could go forward, tired of having family members ask why I still live here, whatever the case may be. Um, and so could you reflect for us what does it mean for you to be sustained? You know, what does it look like for you to continue saying yes to Jesus, um, to continue on this call as long as God calls you, to not leave because tiredness, burnout, fatigue, frustration? How, how does that look? What does that look like in your life that you're sustained? Um, remembering the story. And it's just, um, it's my story, as I continue to reflect on my own story. It's holding carefully the story of others, um, but seeing those intersections in our stories because they're not disconnected. When we are able to sit at the table, we heard so much commonalities around those tables over the weekend. Um, But when we sit together and share these stories, and then there's these connections and realizing they're all connecting to God's story. Um, this is, I, I have encountered race fatigue, so I'm, I've not been on this journey, and it's all happy-go-lucky. Um, and I, a title of a book uh, popped up, and it sounded, that's where I am, called Reconciliation Blues. And as I read this book, I wanted, I was so excited where the author was going, but I was so disappointed when I got to the end because I thought he was going to say, it's okay to bail out. He was the only African-American in, um, on staff, and, um, and, and he was tired of the same thing, the questions being asked. This race fatigue was real. But in the end, he said, but we have to stay in it. And so I was disappointed, but I was also encouraged and convicted. And I just believe um, when I, I see people committed to this, David, um, folks who take Sankofa over and over and over again because they know the value of it. I just recently returned from the Middle East, and we walked the road that Jesus walked with his cross, 
And I was so tired. And I didn't have anything but myself. And I thought, this is the least I could do, what he's called me to do here. If he could carry that cross on this treacherous road that we walked on, all uphill, and went to the cross to the point of death, how can I say I'm tired? So he reminds me often, um, staying in the word, having an accountability partner, having a team that keeps me encouraged. And uh, it's, there are a lot of sources that God provides to feed into this, and we feed one another. But I cannot let um, the value of my story, which is his story, go by the wayside because it starts even before me. It starts back for me with the people who sustained enough so that I can be where I am today, being brought from another country to here. So there's a lot that goes into sustaining me, um, remembering, 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 and then walking. Um, So would you stand, and Debbie, would you mind praying for our church, Um, God's blessing, and then we'll sing one last song, close out our time together. Let's pray. God, it's a hard road that we're traveling, but it's much harder the road that you traveled. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given us this invitation to join you on the journey. Lord, may we be compelled to keep pursuing what's right, what's good, what will bring you glory, what will bring you honor. God, I lift up new community to you today, thanking you for what they've experienced this weekend, but already what they had prepared for before the weekend even came. Lord, keep them on the journey. Take them to the hard places. Allow them an opportunity to receive your gift of lament and know that as they grieve and stand together in that broken place, you are doing a new thing. That in in their midst, this new hope will surface. This new community will indeed become the new community. Lord, and they will draw all people unto you, not to the church, but unto you, reflected through the church. So I thank you, Lord, for my sisters and brothers here, that we are connected because we're connected to you. Bless them, keep them close to you, give them strength in their weakness, provide them what they need at their lowest point. And Lord, as they're on this journey proceeding ahead, May they take the arms of others and walk this road together. So, Lord, we lift these things up to you today. Enjoy thanking you for what you are doing in the midst of new community. And all God's people join with one voice and one heart and said, Amen.
uh, blessed to be able to pastor a church that is interested in this, uh, that, that doesn't run away from this. That's a gift to me. So thank you. Thank you to you for that. Um, could you thank Debbie again for being with us?